Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Priest King. Our study on Psalm 110, which is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. For more information and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Amen, amen. Good morning, everybody. If it looks like I've gained weight, it's because I have... Baby Isaac is doing good, but all the moms and grandmas kept bringing food. I have no sleep and no self-control, and so it's going straight to my hips. Once on the lips, forever on the hips is what they say. just want to thank you all. I I know I'm not the only one that's been in a season where um, we need a little extra help, but man, you guys have really served um, our body so well when we have some struggling with sickness or having surgery you guys have been so faithful and diligent and um, I was just thinking that um, you know giftedness is not a sign of spiritual maturity love is like sacrificial love humility selflessness um, those are signs of a mature Christian and I just want to thank you guys so much for your your great acts of love and humility and service um, it really is an honor to pastor this church in Jesus' name, I'm so grateful. All right, you want to pray over the word? We're in Psalm 110. Today we're going to focus on verse 4. Psalm 110, we're going to focus on verse 4. So Jesus, we love you. We trust you this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would breathe on this word. We want to encounter you through your scripture. We ask that the this would be our daily bread today. Father, as a church... We really want to know you. Lord, we're not after flash or hype. We're after a real encounter with the Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would come in this time, Lord. Lord, I pray that I'd be hidden behind the cross, that anything that comes from my mouth that doesn't please you would fall on deaf ears, Lord. But everything that does come from your heart, let it pierce our hearts today. We need you, God. Our community needs you, Lord. Our children need you. Our school system, by God, needs you. Come, we pray. Come, we pray. In Jesus' beautiful name, somebody say amen. Amen. Hallelujah. April 30th, 1739, George Washington became our first president as he recited the oath of office that was written into our Constitution. The framers required that every future president take this oath, and the moment that the oath was taken, the newly elected official would have would, would legally be set into the presidency. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States and will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's the, uh, the oath that was written into the Constitution. Hand on a Bible. During Trump's inauguration, he had two Bibles because um, that's just how Trump rolls. You know, he's going to have two of everything. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but he had two Bibles. He had... Um, he had the Bible that was used in Abraham Lincoln's inauguration and a Bible that was given to him as a child. Um, but hand on the Bible, the oath is given. George Washington started the tradition um, as the first when he gave the oath, hand on the Bible, and then he kissed the Bible at the end. President Obama's inauguration in 2009, Justice Roberts was to read him the oath. And so Justice Roberts would read a line, I do solemnly swear. And then President Obama would repeat the line back. And... Um, 
in the in the old days, the oath was just read by a, by a justice, and um, the the president just said "I do," kind of like we do at a wedding. But now the tradition is that the president's supposed to read back the oath, and so Justice Roberts read a line of the oath, and Obama, President Obama, read it back. Um, but Justice Roberts said a, a word wrong; he got his words twisted, and then President Obama looked at him, kind of like shocked, and President Obama got his words twisted, and then they just kind of went back and forth, and then they just really slaughtered the whole thing. Um, but many of President Obama's, um, uh, what is, how do you, what is the word? Uh, those who, I'll just say the people that didn't like him, um, said that he was not a legitimate president because he did not recite the oath of office correctly. And so President Obama's administration in the White House, they sat around the day after the inauguration and they decided we got to do this thing again. And so President Obama got a good old fashioned mulligan and they just redid the entire thing. And Justice Roberts came back and repeated it. And President Obama, uh, his inauguration date when he was reelected, um, his next term landed on a Sunday. And when it lands on a Sunday, the, um, the newly elected president will give the oath of office on Sunday, but then on Monday he'll do it again publicly for the, for the public to see. And so President uh, Obama and Justice Roberts, um, they did the oath of office together four times um, because of that mulligan. The setting in of an official is often marked with a solemn oath. An oath is the, the highest form of commitment that a person can offer. It's a, it's a vow a swearing. It's the highest form of a man's word. You remember, we used to say that a man was only as good as his word. The, the oath is the highest form of his word. The setting in of an official is often marked with a solemn oath. The Hippocratic oath, for instance, our law enforcement officers are required to take an oath. Even the Boy Scouts, my friends, have an oath that they take. That's serious, serious business. We don't quite know what to do with oaths in our modern culture. Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount that our yes should be yes and our no should be no. He said that we're never to swear by the gold of the temple or to swear by the name of the heaven heavens. And we know from extra biblical literature that there was a rabbinic teaching of the day that if you swore by the gold of the temple rather than swearing by the temple itself, then your swearing wasn't actually legally binding. Or if you swore by the name of heaven rather than by the God of heaven, then your swearing wasn't actually legally binding. And so the swearing became dualistic and a way to kind of trick people into something because you, you, know, you kind of set it with your fingers crossed behind your back. So Jesus comes against this kind of dualistic swearing and he says, look, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Stop with the semantics and stop with all the deception. But the New Testament church still made vows. They didn't understand Jesus' words to mean that you should never make an, a vow or oath. Paul vows on multiple occasions. John tells us in Revelation chapter 10 that an angel, you know, remember John's caught up in the heavenlies receiving this great vision. He said an angel swore by him who made heaven and the earth. And so the angels swear. So the early church didn't believe that oaths, vows, swearing were totally forbidden, but that oaths, vows, and swearing were sacred and solemn and holy. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that oaths are appropriate only in matters of weight and moment. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, so help me God. Our marriages are marked by vows. Those are, those are oaths that we make before God. Now, God in Scripture on many occasions swears. He doesn't cuss like your grandma, okay, but he, but he swears. God gives oaths. 
The book of Hebrews explores three oaths that God gives. The first is in Psalm 95, 11, where God says, I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. So the author of Hebrew draws the point that Joshua did not lead Israel into the rest of God, God's Sabbath rest, but their sin kept them out of real rest. But the author of Hebrews goes on to conclude that because the the Israelites did not enter into rest, then rest must still be available. And because they were kept out because of their sin, Jesus dealt with our sin and now we're able to enter into real spiritual rest. The second oath is found in Genesis chapter 22, verse 15 through 17. This is the moment where Abraham brings Isaac on Mount Moriah to, um, to sacrifice his own uh, promised son. And when God sees his faithfulness in bringing his son, you remember he doesn't sacrifice Isaac, but there's a, a ram caught in the thicket. But God's response is this, Genesis 22, verse 15 and 17. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. God swears by himself, because there's nothing higher to swear by, that Abraham's offspring will be innumerable. The last oath that Hebrews explores is the oath that we'll explore today from Psalms 110. And it's where God says this, or the scriptures say this, The Lord has sworn... And he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So up to this point in our study, as we've studied Psalm 110, we've talked primarily about the kingly role of Jesus. But Psalm 110 is split into two stanzas. You know what I mean by stanza. Two chunks in the psalm. It's poetry. Two stanzas. The first stanza opens with the Lord says to my Lord, a holy decree. The Lord says to my Lord, sit down at my right hand. And the first stanza is about the kingship of Jesus. So in the first stanza, it opens with the Lord declaring, decreeing that Jesus is to be seated on the throne of heaven and all of heaven and earth will come under his lordship. The first stanza is about the lordship of Jesus. The second stanza opens with an oath from God. The Lord, the Lord opens both stanzas. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. First standard stanza, there's a decree that you are the eternal king of heaven and earth. The second stanza, there is an oath, a swearing. I swear you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Notice that as Jesus steps into This role as he's ordained, fully ordained, as he's brought his sacrifice, shed his own blood, as he's fully ordained as the eternal priest, God oaths. All right, let's read our passage from Psalm 110. Y'all with me so far? You guys need me to tell a funny joke because I don't have any. I live with a bunch of toddlers. And I don't think that's going to entertain you. Psalm 110, verse 1 through 7. You guys ready? First stanza, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Next stanza, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment amongst the nation, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up 
his head. Today, verse 4, the Lord has sworn, will not change his mind. So up to now in our series, we've talked about the decree of God, Jesus being seated on the throne of heaven, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. The next week in our series, we talked about the fact that his people offer themselves freely. His people are not coerced. His people are not intimidated into serving him. They recognize the beauty and the majesty and the goodness in his character. And at that recognition, they offer themselves freely to Jesus. Hallelujah. This week, we'll talk about his priestly role. Up to now, he's been our reigning king, whom we serve with great gladness. Now he is our great high priest, our mediator, our intercessor. We understand the idea of Jesus being our king, but we have to think through what the psalmist meant by calling Jesus our priest. The Old Testament priests primarily dealt with worship and sacrifice. They held the responsibility of facilitating the um, sacrificial system for the atonement of the people of Israel's sins. You brought a goat, a lamb, sheep to the priest to be sacrificed in order to pay for or to cover your sins. And the principle is really simple and really clear. The principle is life for life. An innocent life, innocent blood is shed uh, for you because your blood should be shed because of your sin. Does that make sense? Innocent blood for my guilty blood. Life for life. The priest's responsibility was to facilitate worship, to honor the holiness of God, to teach the covenant of God, and to um, uphold the sacrificial system. So our Messiah, according to Psalm 110, would not only be a king, but our Messiah would also be a priest. He would rule over us with peace and righteousness and justice, but he would also be our mediator, our go-between, between the Father and mankind. Our Messiah would atone for our sins. It's our Messiah's responsibility to deal with our sin issue. According to Psalm 110, it will be Messiah's responsibility to deal with our sin issue. And Father God swears him into this office. He is ordained priest forever at the solemn oath of Father God. God sworn, he's oath, he's vowed that we will have a singular priest forever. Why does God swear? John Calvin wrote, see how kindly God as a gracious father accommodates himself to our slowness to believe. As he sees that we rest not on a simple word that he might more fully impress it on our hearts, he adds an oath. Calvin said it was the kindness of God that oathed to us that Jesus would be our priest forever. If it was just a word, we might stumble and fail to believe. Calvin says the oath is to steady your heart. Now you can ask the question, um, why would God need to oath? Aren't all God's words sure and true? His words never come back void, is what the scriptures say. Why would God need to oath? The simple answer is is yes, of course God's words are always true and never come back void. The more precise answer would be that there are many times when God gives conditional promises. The entire Mosaic covenant was conditional. You follow the law and obey the law and you'll be blessed. You disobey the law and you'll be cursed. 
So the, the Mosaic Covenant was, was a great responsibility for the people of Israel. It was, a, it was a place of blessing. It was also a place of cursing. If they didn't up, uphold the law, then they would, be, um, they would experience God's wrath in a unique way. Conditional promises. The entire Mosaic Covenant was conditional. Um, God, says, uh, God says, if my people will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal their land. I'll hear and heal their land. That's a conditional promise. That if of Scripture really, really matters. There are some ifs in Scripture that are very important. If my people will humble themselves and pray, turn and, and turn from their wickedness, then I'll hear from heaven and heal their land. That, that if is very significant. It's a conditional promise. Romans 8.28, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. There's a condition there to that scripture. And so he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. There is a unique, sovereign, working out of details, knitting together the intricacies of lives of those who love him. God is, has a unique intention to work the for all things for the good of those who love him. That's a unique promise to those who love him. That promise is not established to those who do not love him. There's a condition there. There are a lot of conditions in scripture. Now, conditional promises are not unethical. Anyone who's been a parent for longer than five minutes understands conditional promises. You can go to your friend's house when you clean that nasty bathroom. If the nasty bathroom ain't cleaned, you ain't going nowhere. Right? Conditional promises are very natural in relational settings. But God delineates this word given here in Psalm 110 from a conditional promise. He draws a clear distinction. He's not saying Jesus will be priest forever if. This declaration is in no way conditional. It is absolute and established on the very holiness of God. Jesus will not be priest forever if. Jesus will be priest forever, period. Whether you like it or not. Whether you live holy or righteous or not, whether you dress with all your spiritual garb and you wear an outside religious facade, whether we perform well or whether we utterly fail, Jesus will be priest forever. It is not conditioned at all upon the performance of mankind. Jesus is priest. There is no condition that thwarts the excellency and the permanency of his priesthood. No condition that will ever thwart the excellency nor the permanency of Jesus' priesthood. On my worst day, he is still my priest forever. And the sacrifice which he brought before the Father to atone for my sin, the blood shed from the spotless holy Lamb of God is sufficient. You may have totally screwed up yesterday. He's still priest. His blood still possesses unlimitless power. Cling to the cross. Come to his forgiveness and mercy. You may have backslidden and strayed. Run to him with faith and repentance. His priesthood is still enough. It's all you need. 
Run to Him. Turn from your wickedness. Cast yourself on His great kindness and mercy. His blood is sufficient to wash you of all of your iniquity. That price that He paid is more than enough to to deal with your sin problem. It's sufficient, man. You have not dethroned Him from His priestly ministry with your stupidity. I would have done that a long time ago. So God has not promised on a conditional basis that Jesus would be priest. He swore it on his own character. The next point I want to draw out really quickly. Um, Oaths demand that a commitment is not to be superseded by any outside circumstance or unseen future event. Let me explain that for you. I made plans last Monday to have lunch with some friends. But around 4.30 a.m., my wife decided she's going to have a baby. Now... You can imagine the night we had. I got about an hour of sleep, and you don't want to see me on an hour of sleep. So I texted my friends the picture of a baby, and I said, hey, I ain't ain't making it today. And they sent a congratulations, we love you, and we'll connect another time. Now, I didn't sin in not fulfilling my commitment to go to lunch with them. My commitment to go to lunch with them was trumped by a greater responsibility. An outside, unforeseen future event, namely the birth of our child interrupted my plans. I plan on taking a nap today. Hallelujah. (laughs) But I've got more kids than I can handle and they may interrupt my plan. And then the plan will change from nap to coffee. Okay, that's how that works. James taught the early church in his epistle, chapter 4, not to boast about what they're going to do tomorrow because they're not in control of their future or their lives. He said, don't say we'll go here or we're going to do this tomorrow because something might happen and you can't do it. You're not in control of your life. He said, rather say, we'll go there tomorrow if the Lord wills. And he said, That's, that acknowledges and makes room for the fact that you're not in control. But oaths are different. They're not mere commitments or social obligations. When an oath is made, it's declared to be priority above every future possible unforeseen circumstance or outcome. When I vowed to my wife, I stood before a minister, stood before our friends and family, and I looked at that little, I mean, she probably weighed all of 95 pounds, a little short thing, looked at that little 21-year-old girl and said, I will Hold and cherish you till death do us part. I vowed to her that she, that, that, that covenant would be superior. It would rise above future circumstances or outcomes. There's nothing in the future coming that will, will, that will cause me to abandon this commitment. This commitment is above. It's superior. It, It rises above every future unforeseen event. And so if a pretty girl comes along who catches my eye, that covenant suppresses that pretty girl that comes along that catches my eye. And wives, if you meet a man who tries to woo you and you decide, oh, I like him a little bit better than my husband, that future, unforeseen future event is suppressed by the oath that you made. The vow, the oath. You wake up one day and decide you're bored. The oath suppresses, it trumps, it crushes the boredom. The boredom does not have the right to crush your marriage vows. You start to have financial difficulty or you can't stop fighting. The oath crushes financial difficulty and the fact that you can't stop fighting. And so you figure it out. You work it out. Our society has abandoned the holiness of oaths. And as a process, our families are decaying. 
and when the family decays, you see where we're headed. And so we've got to get back to the holiness of oaths. We've got to understand vows. Now, I'm not throwing a stone at anybody with, who's had a divorce. Um, you, you hear me? There's grace and there's mercy. If I was throwing stones, if we were throwing stones this morning, I'd be the first one on the ground here, okay? i got a big old head with a big target that says, hit me for my sin. Okay, so I'm not throwing stones about, about your mistakes yesterday. But what I am saying is in the future, looking towards tomorrow, we've got to, we've got to really honor vows, oaths. You guys hear me? Nothing external or unforeseen will cause me to abandon my oath to my wife. Your marriage vow rises above. And our marriages are actually intended to reflect the relationship between Jesus and his church. That's what the scripture says in Ephesians chapter 5. That, that my marriage, the way that I love my wife, is supposed to reflect to my children and to my neighbors, to my coworkers and to my community what, what, what real covenant and commitment looks like. They should look at my marriage and say, oh, that must be what Jesus' love for his church is like. And Jesus doesn't quit loving his church because she gets a little bit older and gets a little pudgy, Okay. Jesus doesn't quit on me because I, because I lost the, the physique. All right? I never had the physique to begin with. It never came. Jesus doesn't quit on me because he gets bored. Or, but do you guys hear what I'm saying? Jesus' love for me is sure. Sure as the sun's coming up tomorrow, Jesus loves me, man. And that's the way we're supposed to love our spouses. We vowed to love our spouses that way. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is that when God says, I swear to you, and I will not change my mind, that Jesus is a priest forever, what God is saying is that there is no future unforeseen event that would cause God, God's intention to honor Jesus' priesthood to be thwarted. So, so when some new spiritual guru comes along and says that you you need to follow me to really be accepted by God. I have all the secrets. No, God has sworn and has not changed his mind that Jesus is priest forever. When someone tells you that you need the intercession of Muhammad, no, Muhammad coming 600 years later. No, God has not changed his mind. Jesus is priest forever. And I don't need the ministry of Joseph Smith. I don't need the, do you guys hear what I'm saying? I don't need, I don't need Oprah's opinion. I don't need anyone to mediate between me and God. Jesus is my mediator forever. God swore it. And just because you came along 2000 years later with your smooth talking and charisma, your, your future event does not cause God to go back on his oath. It's an oath. Jesus is it, man. He's the priest forever. He's the only way to the father. His term has not ended. His blood has no expiration date. You do not need to pray to a saint this morning as if their righteous holy life will somehow cause you to earn favor with God. You don't need to call on a saint. You need to call on Jesus. You don't need to confess to a man in a box. Of course, Scripture gives the idea of confessing our sin one to another. But you don't need a man to stand in between you and God. And, and, and I don't need to put on a collar and a robe to, to, to mediate between you and God. No, Jesus is your priest, man. Go to Jesus. You don't need to pay for your sins with good deeds or acts of penance. No, you need to cast yourself on the blood of Jesus which covered all sin. God will not change his mind about Jesus. Father God has oathed to you 
to receive the priestly ministry of Jesus forever. He has oathed to you. He has sworn on his own holy character that your sin will be atoned for by the ministry of Jesus forever. He will not change his mind. It's sure established. It is based upon his own holy character. I swear to you, God says, I swear to you, I will receive the ministry of the priest Jesus forever. When you stand before God on the last day and you stand to be judged and you maybe you're nervous about that day. What will I say? What will I do? You have nothing to say, but Jesus is my priest. His ministry is still sufficient. So the issue becomes now we'll 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 fillet this thing out here. The issue then becomes how can Messiah be a priest? We know that the Messiah comes from the tribe of Judah. Priests come from the lineage of Levi. How could that be? I'm so glad you asked. The psalmist wrote that the, that the Messiah would be a priest forever, not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. He would not come from Levi, and he would not mediate Levi's covenant. He would not function in an earthly tabernacle, but within the heavenly one. He would not administer the Mosaic law. He comes from an entirely different order after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek, you say? If you remember Genesis chapter 13, very early in scripture, obviously, Abraham and his nephew Lot, they decide that they're going to settle in two different territories because they had too many livestock and their herdsmen were starting to bicker. Imagine that, men bickering. And so they decide, uh, uh, Abraham tells Lot, you pick which way you want to go and I'll go the other way. We're just getting too big to try to stay together. And so Lot goes uh, one way, Abraham goes the other way. Lot settles kind of down towards Sodom. And what happens is some kings come in and they raid the territory. And raiding the territory that Lot settled in, they capture Lot and capture Lot's family. And so um, down toward the Jordan Valley. And so um, Abraham hears that his nephew Lot has been captured. And Abraham gathers his servants, men he's trained in war. And they attack in the middle of the night. And they uh, attack these kings and they recover Lot and recover all the goods. And, and Abraham gets out of there with a victory. Hallelujah. Um, and as Abraham returns... Scripture says that he's met by Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem and a priest of the Most High God. This is the first time in Scripture that the word priest is used. There is no priest yet. But the Scripture says that Jesus is, or Jesus, um, Abraham's met by Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who's a priest of the Most High God, and who brings to him, catch this, bread and wine. And the scripture says that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. He gave a tenth of his spoil to Melchizedek, who functioned both as a priest of the Most High God and the king of Salem. Now, we just stumbled into like whole chapters of the book of Hebrews. And so I'll, I'll just kind of summarize really quick what Hebrews articulates. First, Hebrews makes the point that Melchizedek has no genealogy. He has no record of beginning or record of end. Every other person in Scripture up to this point, when they're introduced, they're introduced with the long, he's the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, and, 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 and they're given a, a lifespan, and he lived so many years. Every other person's given a, a genealogy and a, and a, and a history and a, and a lifespan. But Melchizedek just blows in without a beginning or without an end, Hebrews says. 
And Hebrews says that 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 was a clue, that was a prophetic picture of the fact that our coming Messiah would have no beginning and would have no end. He would be from eternity past and he would conquer death and live forever. He would be the internal priest. Um, Hebrews says that it draws that point out. Now, many in early church history thought that Melchizedek was actually a Christophany or a a pre-incarnate showing up of Jesus. Now, that's not the point of Hebrews, and I don't believe that Melchizedek was a, was a Christophany. I think that he was a real person, but I think that the author of Hebrews was drawing out the point that in the same way that we know nothing about the beginning or end of Melchizedek, you'll know nothing about the beginning or end of Jesus because he'll have no beginning or end. He'll reign eternally. Next, Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. Zedek is the Hebrew for righteousness, so his name literally is king of righteousness. And Melchizedek reigns in Salem, which means peace, and clearly correlates with Jerusalem. So Messiah would be a priest after the order of this strange, mysterious man from Genesis chapter 13, who has no beginning and end, who is the king of righteousness and is the king of Salem, of peace. Jesus' rule and ministry will establish on earth righteousness and he will bring peace between God and man and peace amongst men. Furthermore, the author of Hebrew makes the point in chapter 7, verse 4 through 10, that the Levitical priesthood is inferior to the order of Melchizedek because Abraham, who was the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, the father of Levi, tied to him and was blessed by Melchizedek. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4 through 10 with me. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from people. That is from the brothers through these also who are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. You hear what he's saying? This man who did not come from Abraham blessed Abraham who had the promise. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. The superior always blesses the inferior. So Abraham was blessed by a man who was superior to him. Verse 8, In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. What is the author of Hebrews trying to draw out? The Levitical priesthood, the Mosaic covenant, is inferior to the priesthood of Melchizedek. It's subject to it. So Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham ties to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is the greater. Then he he follows through with Levi. Abraham would have been Levi's great-grandfather, right? So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi. Um, so Abraham is Isaac's great-grandfather, or Levi's great-grandfather. Levi's great-grandfather tithed. Therefore, Levi is inferior to Melchizedek. It's the point of the scripture here. What's the larger point of the scripture here? The law bows its knee to the one who comes with bread and wine. The law is subject to the one who has no beginning and no end, and, and comes to Abraham, the one with the promises, with bread and with wine. He doesn't bring the Mosaic covenant. He brings a greater covenant. A covenant that's superior to the Mosaic covenant. Yeah. 
Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. picture is that the high priest, the priest of Israel, they bring sacrifices day in and day out, morning, evening, and noon. They're, they're sacrificing animals to try to atone for the sins of the people. But the scripture says that Jesus, he, he, offers, he offers a sacrifice once and for all. And that blood did the job, man. And he didn't need to stand anymore because the job was done. And so he sat down at the right hand of God. It's completed. It's over. Your sin has been dealt with. It's been atoned for. There's nothing else to bring. You got nothing to bring anyway. God has sworn forever that what was brought was sufficient. It's enough. What on, on the sworn oath of God, the blood of Jesus did it. It is done. God says, I am satisfied with that. Stop trying to pay for your own sins and spinning wheels and trying to atone, trying to clean yourself up. Maybe God, you can't clean yourself up. Cast yourself on the priest. The sacrifice is complete. Our great high priest has offered his own blood. He does not stand day in and day out. He does not rise in the early morning bringing blood to the altar. He's seated because the job is done. And the conditional Mosaic covenant that says that if you perform, you'll be blessed. It now bows its knee to the covenant of grace, which says, turn to me with faith and repentance and you will be blessed undoubtedly. The covenant of, of, of Moses said, you perform and you'll have God's blessing. The covenant of grace says, just come. I will lavish my great love upon you freely. Not because of what you've done. You can't do anything. But because of what Jesus has done, come. The Levitical priesthood bows its knee to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And you are set free forever from the order of law. You have no performing to do. You are empowered by grace and the Holy Spirit. You will live holy, but not because you're trying to earn something, but because God has produced in you a deep desire for himself. There's nothing to earn. You've got no, no need to perform. You're a bad actor anyway. Somebody from the worship team, if you'll come for me. God has sworn to you. I swear to you. That the blood of Jesus will be enough forever. God swears to you that Jesus will not only be king, but he'll be priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is greater, it's superior to the Mosaic covenant, to the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical order is finished. It is overshadowed by the order of Melchizedek, the one who has no beginning and no end, who comes to you with bread and wine in his hands. Jesus says, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. God has invited you to rest 
in the ministry of the great high priest. Under the Levitical priesthood, you you imagine bringing your sacrifice and wondering if the priest did it right. Better do it right, man. And then you mess up and you think, I got to go bring something else. And there's a sense of unrest, the sense of not being settled, of needing to do. I've got to keep doing in order to, to be cleansed, to be atoned for. There's a sense of doing. Under this new covenant with this new great high priest, there is no sense of unsettlement. Jesus did it right. And he did it once and for all. And he's inviting you this morning to leave behind a covenant of works. What does that mean for you? That means you can breathe in the kingdom of grace. Take a deep breath this morning. And our enemy loves to cripple us with thoughts of condemnation. Not conviction. Conviction and condemnation are two different things. Conviction is when when your dad says, you fell on your bike and get up and do it again. You can do it. Get up. Conviction is when you make a F and you're smart as a whip and your dad says, you're better than that. Conviction is the loving father leading you to purity. Condemnation is something different. Condemnation is when the enemy comes and says, you are unworthy. You are unloved. You are unacceptable. You're a screw-up. You've always been a screw-up. You're always going to be a screw-up. The voice of condemnation says, if you ever want God to love you, you better learn to do better. You better start performing. You better pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get some stinking soap and start washing. The ministry of grace says, come receive. Come receive. The ministry of condemnation says that you've, you've got you've to pick yourself up and you try to pick yourself up and you learn really quick that you're digging. You keep digging, but the hole keeps getting deeper. And so then many of us just quit and we just say, I can't, I can't do that anyway. The ministry of grace says, come to the cross, bow your knee, confess your shortcomings and your failures and receive limitless love, perfect love unbridled love. Some of us grew up with fathers who if we didn't perform well, they were sure we knew about their their disapproval. That's not what God's like. When you screw up, God says, come. Come to the cross. When you've turned from him and you've found yourself in sin or you've, or maybe you've never come to Jesus at all and you're totally, totally in sin and you're, you're walking in this direction. Your, your sin has not, has not revoked Jesus' right to his priesthood. His blood's still sufficient. Um, you haven't dethroned him. And so you can keep living saying, oh, I've got to make up for my own problem. And, and no, you just need to turn and come back to his priesthood. He, you didn't dethrone him. He's still there. His blood's still perfectly sufficient. Your drug addiction is nothing for the blood of Jesus. Your sexual sin ain't nothing for the blood of Jesus. Your lies, your deception, your stealing, your arrogance, your pride is nothing for the blood of Jesus. You just come to him. You're caught up in pornography. Come to Jesus. 
you got family issues, you know you're living in bitterness and unforgiveness, you come to Jesus. His blood is capable of washing you, cleansing you. And the scriptures say that he'll give you a new heart. You've got a heart of stone. Of course it ain't beaten. He'll give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. Come to Jesus. He's enough, man. He's enough. Come to Jesus. Oh, what arrogance to think that you could actually do something to cause Jesus to lose his priesthood, man. It's established on the sworn oath of God. God swears to you, Jesus is enough. God swears to you, Jesus is the only way. God swears to you, Jesus' arms will be open wide to you forever. Come, turn with repentance and faith. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.